Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Coming up in the second half of today's show, journalist and senior producer for CBS News and Sunday Morning, David Morgan. His new book is packed full of one-on-one interviews with some of the smartest and wackiest entertainment entertainers of all time. They came together and literally changed the face of t- TV comedy. Uh, David Morgan's book celebrates 50 years of Monty Python's Flying Circus. And if you think the circus is history, stay tuned to find out what's in the works as we speak. And my next guest uh, is a very prolific author. She has been on the show before, and a lot of her work is inspired by her background and her interest in certain areas. We're going to find out more about that in just a moment. She is Pam Janoff. She's the author of several international bestsellers. She's uh, including the international bestseller, The Commandant's Girl. She holds a bachelor's uh, in international affairs from George Washington University and a master's degree in history from Cambridge. I share that because it informs where she's coming from here. And uh, she's joining us today to talk about her new book. It's called The Lost Girls of Paris. Pam Janoff, welcome. Thanks so much for having me back. Very pleased to have you back. It's funny, I was saying to you before we came live that I was listening to the previous conversation we had. It was actually six years ago, this very day, March March 4th. <laughs> so um, you've, you've done a lot of work since then, Pam. Time <laughs> <laughs> flies. I know, it does indeed. So um, let's just begin with uh, this, because you've been, um, your background in foreign service has influenced most of your books. So um, you were with the State Department and the Pentagon. Um, but you mentioned last time you didn't really think of yourself just as a historical fiction author. Has that changed any? Well, you know, I don't sort of subscribe to particular genres. You know, I write world books that are centered around World War II um, right now. That's where my heart is and, and some very formative experiences in my life. So as long as that's where there are stories to tell that take my breath away, uh, that's where I will reside. Mm. You said um, when you're looking at what comes next in your body of work, you say that as a writer, you should always be true to yourself, listen to your readers, but also a part of the art dictates what comes next. So how did this particular story come to you for The Lost Girls of Paris? This, the, the true inspiration for this book was something I discovered when I was sort of researching for my next idea. And I discovered the amazing story of the women who had served Britain's special operations executive, um, an agency created by Winston Churchill. Uh, He wanted the agents to go behind enemy lines and, in his words, set Europe ablaze. And they did so through sabotage and subversion. And at some point, uh, sending women was an idea, a really novel idea. Um, and, And they went in great numbers and were very successful. But through a series of betrayals, Many of the agents, including approximately 12 of the women, never came home. Um, was that mystery ever solved? Because uh, it was a mystery, according to the, the notes I have here. Yes. So uh, it was pretty clear um, that, you know, they, they knew the girls had been captured and killed. And the woman in real life who had been their spy handler, Vera Atkins, in my book, I have a fictitious woman, Eleanor Trigg, but Vera Atkins went looking not just to find out kind of what happened to her girls, but why and how. And there were numerous theories of betrayal, um, many of which were not just plausible, but might have coexisted. So there was a notion that it might have been a jealous French woman as part of a love triangle who had sold people out. One of the members of SOE thinking they were protecting people might have inadvertently betrayed his own. Um, there were also notions of a much higher and deeper betrayal. Um, and, and all of these were to some extent borne out by what people found after the war. 
It's so interesting. And you said, uh, Jess, that these women were sent in great numbers, and yet it remained secret for so many years. Why do you think that was? Well, so I, in my research, I estimate that for SOE proper, about 40 women went over. Um, now, of course, there were other women doing things and on the home front, and there were some American women. But of the British women serving SOE, I would estimate about 40 women. Heroic exploits. Um, and, and, you know, so much of it was lost in the, in the rush of history. If you think of just what was going on at the end of World War II with recovery and communism and the Cold War and, you know, everything sort of shifting, it wasn't something people focused on in large part because um, the women really didn't have official status to the extent the men might have. And so it did take several years after the war for them to gradually gain recognition. But we see this over and over again in history where women's contributions are minimalized or marginalized or overlooked. Right, right. So um, let's look at how you began a book, how you began to put some ideas together for a book about this, because you weave some uh, of the fact into fiction, and um, that's a, a that's kind of a delicate dance, I think. <laughs> it, it is. Um, I always say with historical fiction, there are three tough questions for me. It's how do you do the research? How do you weave in the research, which is really what you're talking about? And then how not to make mistakes with the research. But certainly with history and fiction. Um, It's the need to be true to history um, while moving the story forward. It's not doing a dump of historical information somewhere in the book just because I think it's really interesting in a way that stops the story, all of that. Right. And so this is, um, I I know so many people who are obsessed with reading uh, stories of this. Myself, um, I grew up, you know, in England with grandparents who went through two world wars. And so it was a topic of conversation at many dinner parties, at gatherings and stuff. And my parents were little babies in the war. So uh, for me, it's, um, it's always kind of been there. But there are people that I've met here who are just fascinated by it um, and yet really had no connection with it. Why do you think that is? Oh, you know, there's this great sort of renaissance of World War II fiction right now. Um, you know, and as much as I'm a producer of it, I'm also a consumer of it. I read everything that comes across. And um, I think there's sort of three reasons that these books continue to be so popular and continue to be written. One is that um, I found that when in, in the 90s, say after the Cold War had ended, that there was suddenly a lot of archival material available to researchers from the East that might have been shut off before. So that, that was like the 50-year release? Well, no, just that, you know, if you think about, so um, I went over to Eastern Europe in the mid-1990s as a diplomat, and it was right after communism and the Cold War had ended, and a lot of World War II issues in that part of the world were almost frozen in time. They could never, um, you know, they could never talk about it. There was no free speech. There was no exchange right. between East and West culturally. And I think just, the opening of connections between East and West you know, provided a lot of material that we didn't have before. Additionally, of course, the survivors across globally, the World War II survivors are getting up there in years. And so there's a real impetus to capture and tell their stories in any form that we can. And as a writer, what keeps me coming back to World War II is this. I want to take the reader, and I want him or her to stand in the shoes of my protagonist and say, what would I have done? And World War II has such dark choices and dire circumstances that it's just incredibly fertile ground for storytelling. Right, right. I, I agree. You know, I think it's important we say that these women who went over were just everyday women. They weren't trained in espionage. I mean, many of them were mothers. What do you think possessed them to leave their children? One of the interesting things in writing The Lost Girls of Paris was studying these dozens and dozens of women, because, you know, when, when the SOE decided to bring in women, it was sort of like, where are we going to get the women from? They didn't have the natural pipeline that they did for men from colleges and military. And so these women came or were recruited from all walks of life. Um, and, you know, you look at the mode, some of them were, many of them were wives, some of them were mothers. Um, in my book, it's a single mother um, who made this decision with eyes wide open, knowing that their life expectancy once they were deployed might only be a few weeks. Um, 
So it clearly wasn't about the compensation. It had to come from somewhere else. And whether that was a sense of duty and patriotism or taking the place of a fallen spouse or sibling, um, they came forward. Right. And I'm wondering, during your research, um, you say it was quite unlike any kind of research you'd had to do before. Uh, I'm wondering if um, any of those women wrote about it and said, you know, how it changed them and their lives going forward. So there are, interestingly, for this particular project, there is much that has been written in a nonfiction sense. So both, you know, books that have been written about it, but also memoir and, and all sorts of things. And so... Um, you know, you do get these snippets of why individual women made the choice to do it and then how they were changed afterwards. I mean, they're very much like combat soldiers coming back, those who came home. Um, and it's interesting because the spy handler, you know, Vera Atkins, she went around and as she tried to piece together what had happened to the fallen, she spoke to many of the women who had been over there to try and get a sense what was going on. Right, right. All right, well, let's take a quick break because I want to ask you to share the story of your book with our listeners and then we'll look at some of the um, facts that you wove in there uh, or maybe how you tweaked some of them to make a great story. Everybody's raving about this. The book is called The Lost Girls of Paris. My guest is Pam Janoff. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please stay tuned. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Are you ready for something real, raw, upfront, and honest? Then tune in each Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here for Love from the Hip. I am spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and the host, Sakura Sutter. This show is unlike anything you have ever heard and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world. Their skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Do you love wildlife? Then make a real difference by helping Paws care for sick and injured wild animals. Volunteers help feed and clean the animals until they are well enough to return to the wild. Sign up today and help save a wildlife. No experience necessary. All training is provided. Visit PAWS.org or call 425-787-2500. Coming up March 25th on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Seattle author Elise Hooper joins us with a peek into the life of photographer Dorothea Lang, the woman who captured the real America. We'll also hear from international best-selling author Steve Barry, who always reveals little-known facts about history and thrillers. Tune in Monday at noon Pacific time, Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on more than 600 podcasts at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Innovative business leaders know to advertise here. Learn how affordable it is at conversationslive.net. There's a reason they invented the internet. It's called 1150kknw.com. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. My guest is Pam Janoff. You can find out more about Pam at her website, pamjanoff.com. Uh, her new book is called The Lost Girls of Paris, and um, we're going to talk about that in a second. But Pam, ha I counted on your website that you've written 11 books right now, but oftentimes I find that that number's missing a couple. Is, is that about right for you? You're really close. It's actually only 10 books, and the 11th was a short story I contributed to the anthology Grand Central. Oh, okay. Very good. So... Um, I know you've written several in the <laughs> since we last talked. So um, um, you talked last time about um, writing with preschoolers, and I'm assuming they're no longer preschoolers. Uh, they're not. I have two <laughs> eight-year-olds and a ten-year-old, so it's a different kind of busy. Yeah, different kind. Has it got a little easier to get some time for your writing or not? I don't know that it ever gets easier. You know, it's ebb and flow, and like all of us, we, you 
kind of have to carve out the time you need and then balance it with the other things that are important in your life, I think. Right, right. So let's look at the story. We talked about how it's, um, it was inspired by a true story of the of Britain's special operations executive orders. Um, and we begin the book in Manhattan in 1946 with Grace Healy doing, if you will, a walk of shame. <laughs> but very quick. You know what struck me um, is how quickly I felt I got to know Grace in those first few pages. It must be the walk of shame. Uh, no, like, no, 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 we don't. <laughs> it was a 1946 walk of shame, which gave even me pause. <laughs> so tell us, about, tell us about the story. She's walking through Grand Central Station and makes a great discovery. So Grace Healy is a really interesting character to me. She's what I refer to as not quite a war widow. She lost her husband in the Second World War, but not to combat. She lost him in a pre-deployment accident. And so Grace is living alone in Manhattan, kind of hiding out, um, wrestling with her guilt and her grief and trying to figure out what comes next. And when we meet her, she's just come from this dead walk of shame um, with her her deceased husband's best friend, no less. So um, she's sort of flustered and finds herself diverted through Grand Central. Um, and she discovers a suitcase under a bench there, abandoned, and she's sort of checking out the suitcase to see if she can find any identification, and she pulls out the photographs of 12 young women, and she's sort of curious who the women are, and there is a name on the outside of the suitcase, the name Trigg, and she quickly learns that the woman who owns the suitcase, Eleanor Trigg, has just been killed in a car accident outside Grand Central. And that Eleanor Trigg is the woman uh, based, loosely based on Vera Atkins, the, the true life woman you talked about earlier. Very loosely based, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so you say all of your, all of your characters are fictional. Um, were they based on anybody in mind, though? Well, let me say this. I think my, my book is told from three points of view. So one is Grace in New York, and another is my Eleanor Trigg, my Vera-like character who goes back to try and find out what happened to her girls. And then I feature one of the girls, or one of the women, they used to call them the girls, as an agent in 1944 France, and that's Marie. Um, I could have written a whole book based entirely on the female agents in 1944. There were just so many stories. Um, But by doing this sort of three-character narrative, I had to you know, sort of make a composite character of the women of SOE um, based on all of the reading I had done. Right, right. Now, Grace, uh, she is drawn to to Marie. Uh, Marie is a mother-turned-agent. Um, what was her obsession with Marie? You know, it's one of those sort of unknown things where you feel connected to someone. Uh, first of all, um, I think Marie and Grace are sort of roughly the same age, you know, in their 20s at this point in the story. Um, And so I think as Grace starts to unravel the tale, she's amazed at how this young woman, Marie, you know, he's perhaps even a bit younger than herself, could have done these heroic things at at, at the same age as herself when she's feeling sort of in over her head just by ordinary life. And so finding out what happens to Marie and the other girls becomes not just a curiosity, but a kind of personal quest and healing. Mm. Now, I know you don't want to give away the whole story here, but could you share maybe a couple of facts that you felt it was important to weave into the story, even if you fictionalize them somewhat? Well, the parts of the story that are actually based on the truth are that, you know, the creation of SOE, the reasons that they brought in the women, the ways that they recruited them on Baker Street in London, and that they sent them to these training schools before deploying them into France. And, you know, I've tried to be accurate in the kinds of techniques the women used and those sorts of things. The play, and also the facts, of course, that they were betrayed and arrested and killed, that is all drawn from real history. Now, for me, the parts where I've had to take some liberties, um, compiling sort of um, my own fictitious agents, you know, based on the stories that I've read, um, the locations, the missions, those sort of things I've taken great liberties with just for the sake of story. And the other thing is actually that's significant is the training schools. In reality, one of the agents might have gone to two or three or four different training schools before being deployed. And in the 
the book, for the sake of story, I've really focused on just one. Mm. So in the, when you were doing your research, um, what made this research different to research you'd done before? Was, what surprised you the most? Well, in terms of research process, it's interesting. This was an area, other books, say my last book, The Orphan's Tale, there were gaps in the material, things I could not find out, and I had to spec- speculate. With The Lost Girls of Paris, there was a lot written in nonfiction, and so actually the challenge there was to stop researching and start writing. You know, I could have gone down that rabbit hole of research for a really long time. In terms of what surprised me, obviously the scope and breadth of these heroic women with whom I had not been familiar, despite, you know, working on the war for roughly two decades now, and also the betrayals. You know, um, there are some really significant betrayals of these women who sort of put their trust in their government and the fact that they were they thought they were doing the right thing. Yeah. Interesting. I talked to James Rollins a couple of weeks ago, and he said he gives himself a time frame for research because otherwise he'd just research nonstop and never write the book. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Um, some historical fiction authors I know say they have to do all of the research ahead of time where, you know, they really have to be woven into it before they start writing. And I'm more of a contemporaneous researcher where I only need so much at the start, and then I work on a need-to-know basis. But there was still that constant fear that the research would overwhelm the writing. Right, right. Now, you just mentioned your your previous novel, uh, The Orphan's Tale, and I read that you said that was the book that broke you. How so? was inspired by two incredible true stories. One was a very uplifting story of a German circus that had sheltered Jews during World War II. The other story that was absolutely horrific um, was something called a train of unknown children, and it was a train of babies that had been taken from their parents too young to know their own names, and that train was headed for a concentration camp. And from the moment I read of that story, I knew I needed that image in my book early and prominently, but I waited forever to write that scene because I felt in order to do it justice, I would have to metaphorically put my own three small children on that train. Mm. And so that's really what broke me. And it was hard to, you know, normally I write sort of in this like seat of the pants way where I throw down all the words at once. Mm -hmm. But for that scene, I had to get it right the first time. And then I couldn't write for a long time after that. Right. I can imagine it very emotionally draining. So if that was the book that broke you, you say The Lost Girls of Paris, the book we're talking about now, is by far the most difficult book you've written. How so on that? Well, what was difficult, every book is difficult in its own way. They're yeah. all different children. Um, but The Lost Girls of Paris was hard because it was three narrators over multiple time periods and in different countries and on different continents. And so, and there was a bit of a mystery element to it. So you're weaving together these chapters, trying to make sure that the right information is being revealed at the right point. And then um, what you find is that it can't be a one, two, three, one, two, three in terms of the order of the chapters, you know, neatly braiding together the women in sequence. Because at some point, one of the women is going to need tell more of her story, you know, that sort of thing. So a lot of the construction and the timing and that sort of thing was really tricky with this book. And so then the big question is, how did you manage that? (laughs) How did you manage to weave that together and keep it all together? Well, I think a few things. What you ultimately go for is not perfect symmetry, but balance at the end of the day. So every character has had her story told. The other piece is that I'm not normally a very visual writer. I don't have big charts and things up on my wall and pictures. However, for this book, at one point, I actually did color coding, where I had a color for each character, Mm -hmm. and I lined up the chapters to check the flow of it. Um, And frankly, the third thing is I have a wonderful editor at my publisher, and I'm not one of these writers that turns in a perfectly formed manuscript. I get as close as I can, and then we, we leave time to hash it out together. So she and I had many conversations about whether there were pieces that needed to go in a slightly different order, you know, given the the odd chronology of the book to make it make sense. Yeah, I can't tell you how much I color code, Pam. <laughs> Just like a big, <laughs> I'm a big believer in color coding. I have to do more of it in my life. <laughs> so um, 
one of the, is there a particular scene for you? I, I know you just talked about the one from the uh, Orphan's Tale. Obviously, that you know would be extremely hard to write about people going off to the gas chambers in the train. But is there a particular scene that you you struggle with more than others? A particular scene in this book that I struggled with? Well, in general, in writing or in this book. Well, it, you know, for me, the process, I'm sort of a, a, like a pantser where it all comes out at once, but I usually have an opening image. I usually have some idea where we'll wind up, although that can vary. Um, it can surprise me. And then one or two high moments or scenes along the way that might act as beacons. And then there's, of course, just that really dark middle of a book. And I think one particular challenge in writing this book was Grace's story and her solving the mystery of the lost girls. So, you know, I might have set Grace in 2019. She could have just as easily been a modern character. But when I made the choice that I wanted to show post-war in the U.S., in New York, it created a challenge in the mystery solving because Grace can't just hop on a plane to London or jump on the Internet. Right. So right. I actually think that was a really interesting challenge of how to solve a mystery in 1946. Yes. Um, you write that one of your favorite things as a writer is to take a character, often a woman, uh, who in normal times would have lived a very standard life, but through cataclysmic world events is thrown off her normal path. And you, you like to see how she's tested how she's challenged, and that's what makes your story so interesting, I think. Um, how did Grace change throughout the course of this book? Well, so Grace is was someone who was raised, even though she's in the U.S., she was raised pretty traditionally, raised to get married. And, you know, one of the hard truths for her after her husband died was that she wasn't ever sure marriage was maybe the right course for her in the first place. So that was not helping her guilt in the situation. Um, and, and she's also kind of hiding out in New York, you know, wanting to be there, not really wanting to tell her family that. And watching and learning about the, the lost girls and the thing, incredible they, things they did, I think, gives Grace a lot of fortitude to say, this is what will come next for me, to sort of put aside the guilt and say, this is what I want and own it in a way that would be pretty hard to do in 1946. Mm-hmm. So now you're 10 books in. Um, what have you, what, what do you know now as a, as a writer, as an author, as a storyteller that you wish you had known when you wrote your first book or two, Pam? That's such an interesting question. Um, uh, one little tidbit, I'm not sure if this is as deep and profound as I'd like to be for my, (laughs) my younger self. Um, so when I started writing historical fiction in, you know, the early 2000s, I sort of felt like I was creating an imaginary world, sort of Tolkien-esque, and as long as I was adhering to the rules of my world, that should be just fine. And I probably didn't, I probably underappreciated the need to be in a truly historically accurate world in a way that readers expect in 2019. Um, So, you know, that that real, the minutiae that we go down to as writers in every single book to try and get the details of our story world right in historical fiction is excruciating. And that's not something I probably did as rigorously on a first book, you know, which is still with me. Mm. (laughs) So um, I've I've learned that readers really demand that in a pretty public way. Um, And I appreciate that. I appreciate that they do. Um, But, you know, we'd all like another shot at our first book. Right, right. And so what did you take away from this book? Because I think with, you know, each book you're getting stronger. Uh, Hopefully one is getting stronger uh, as we progress in our work, right? Um, I like to Yeah. And so what did you take away from writing this book? Well, this book, interestingly, my first book that's been optioned for film. And one of the people who is very involved in that project has said that she thinks this is a book for the Me Too moment when women are really finding their voice in all different areas. And so that's a very, very important theme to me. And another very timely theme that I think has come out of this book, although I don't set out to write theme, it's sort of retrospective, is the trust that we place in our governments and whether such trust is warranted. It's a very big question. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Given the betrayal that happened in in this book, The the Lost Girls of Paris, very big question. And so um, what do you hope Listen, uh, what do you hope readers will take away from the story? Well, I want readers to know about the girls. I want them to see 
their strength and their voice as relevant then and relevant now. Um, and I always, as ever, I want the readers to see the gray areas and the personal dilemmas and ask themselves, what would I have done? Mm. Well, the book is called The Lost Girls of Paris. I, I have a, a kind of off-tangent question here, Pam, that I, I want to ask you because I know that a long time, 20 years ago or so, you were in Poland as a diplomat for the State Department um, and um, dealt with Holocaust issues. And, you know, there's been a lot lately of people writing there's no such thing as the Holocaust. What do you want to say to those people? Well, I think that, you know, one difficult question, I mean, I, I've lived there, I've walked it, and so it's so personal to me that the right. notion anyone could think that is a bit foreign. But one question that always comes up for novelists is, well, by writing fiction, are you somehow diminishing the true history? And I think that kind of silencing is exactly what the Holocaust deniers would want. So I support folks writing in all forms about what happened, as long as we're pretty clear when we're writing fiction versus nonfiction. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking with you, Pam. A final quick word you'd like to leave our listeners with today. I just think it's great to connect with readers on an individual basis. And so I invite everyone to reach out with, to me on Facebook or Twitter or through my website, which is www.pamgenoff.com. Thank you so much, Pam. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Bye. And the book again is called The Lost Girls of Paris. You can find out more about Pam at pamgenoff.com. And please do stay with us. Uh, we are going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Coming up March 25th on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Seattle author Elise Hooper joins us with a peek into the life of photographer Dorothea Lang, the woman who captured the real America. We'll also hear from international best-selling author Steve Barry, who always reveals little-known facts about history and thrillers. Tune in Monday at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on more than 600 podcasts at conversationslive.net. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Academy of Canine Behavior, we cover the world of animals. This week, March 10th, it's Best Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen and his sister Linda, also a best practitioner in the studio. Together, they can help with emotional, behavioral, or physical problems with you or your animal friends. So plan to give us a call for your free remote treatment. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk. AM at Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. Advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Make us part of your daily routine. Alternative Talk, 1150. And welcome back, everyone. <laughs> welcome back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, not Monty Python. But we are going to talk about Monty Python. Um, you know, it was broadcast by the BBC between 1969 and 1974. We're talking about Monty Python's Flying Circus. So it was only on the air for barely five years. But here we are 50 years later celebrating and uh, we're going to uh, talk about a, a new book. Well, it's an updated book. It's uh, Monty Python, The Complete Oral History, Revised and Updated Edition uh, by journalist David Morgan. And uh, I'll introduce him properly in just a minute. But we're going to play a short clip from Monty Python just to get us in the mood. Eric, what are we doing? 
Uh, yes. Well, when I was thinking of funny Monty Python bits, uh, you know, for me, it's hard to beat the Black Knight scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So I thought we'd just <laughs> hear just a little bit of that. Look, you've got no arms left. Yes, I have. Look, it's just a flesh wound. <laughs> <laughs> you can't help but laugh. I mean, 50 years yes. later, right? <laughs> Whatever it is. John Cleese says the uh, Black Knight there. Uh, perfect. Uh, just complete resilience. Doesn't want to admit that his limbs have been removed. Yeah, I had a very, I, that was a very visual scene. I, I pictured that as we were listening yes. to it there. All right, so um, we're going to talk, uh, we're going to hear actually from David Morgan. I sat down with him a couple of weeks ago. He's a senior producer for CBSNews.com and for CBS Emmy Award winning news magazine Sunday Morning. He's written about film production and media issues for publications such as the L.A. Times, Newsday, Hollywood Reporter, and he previously worked for ABC News. And uh, he wrote this book uh, originally, um, I don't know how long ago, but it's an updated version, Monty Python Speaks, The Complete Oral History, Revised and Updated. And here's my conversation with David Morgan. David, the foreword in your book was written by John Oliver, and he begins with this sentence. Writing about the importance of Monty Python is basically pointless. So why did you want to write about it in the beginning, and why do the update? Um, well, I had uh, done the original edition of this book uh, 20 years ago, uh, time to the 30th anniversary, and so I wanted to update it for the 50th to explore what the Python has been up to in the 21st century. Uh, so it includes their uh, blockbuster reunion show in London in 2014, uh, which was uh, spectacularly successful beyond their comprehension. I mean, uh, they had originally booked to do one show, and uh, 16,000 uh, tickets sold out in 43 and a half seconds. Oh, my God. And they kept adding additional shows and kept selling them out. And then the final performance was broadcast by satellite to cinemas all over the world. And they, had, they, they could not believe the response they got from the, their fans, because it wasn't just baby boomers. It was the children and grandchildren of baby boomers who had been who gravitated to the Pythons and were fans. Uh, so it really shows the, the timelessness uh, of their humor and how their, uh, their TV shows, the films, the record albums, all have the staying power that uh, very few things in pop culture have. Yeah. When you were talking with them, did you get the sense that they understood that this would be around forever? Because I, I was surprised to read that the show only actually aired for five years in its original form. Yeah, originally, it, it debuted on the BBC in 1969, and they did 45 half-hour episodes for them. Um, and then it was uh, brought over to the United States on PBS. Um, and I'm sure at the time, they had no idea that it would have any staying power. And if, if you look back at what was on television in the 1960s that has any sort of cultural currency nowadays, there's a Star Trek and there's Monty Python. And I can't think of anything else, really. Right. That has right. Power. right. And I, th I think, it, I think it's, it speaks to the revolutionary uh, style of their show. I mean, it was, it was a revolutionary time for pop culture in TV, music, films, fashion. And um, just as the Beatles were revolutionary in the area of music, the Pythons were in comedy because they broke so many rules. The BBC had given them an incredible amount of freedom. They basically said, go ahead and make some shows for us. It didn't give them any restrictions. And the Pythons used that freedom as much as they could. And so they were breaking all these rules about what makes for television comedy, uh, what makes for sketch comedy. They, they ignored punchlines, for example. They ignored narratives. There were no running characters. Uh, instead, it was just a barrage of comic ideas. And they would string these comic ideas in this sort of stream of consciousness way, tied together with surreal animation, now linking it all together. And it, it was just revolutionary in its content and its presentation. There wasn't anything like it before or since. Right, and I read in your book that the BBC didn't even censor it when it first began. That did change along the way because the mud hit the it, fan a, a few times, but um, originally it wasn't even censored. 
No, not at first, but then they started paying more attention to it, and then they started getting a little worried, and TV executives, of course, they'll necessarily worry about things that might cause offense, not what has caused offense. So they, they would... Uh, they would uh, talk to the pythons about cutting things, and the pythons would fight back. And it was good practice for the movies when uh, Life of Brian came out, and they were facing censorship battles over that film by people claiming that it was blasphemous. Mm. I was interested to read this. Uh, John Cleese was talking about injecting energy into a skit, how they do that. And I was surprised to read that he told you the best advice he ever got was from David Attenborough, of all people, of course, BBC broadcaster and natural historian. And that advice was use shock sparingly. He said if you use it too much, it just becomes the norm and you're just thrashing around. Yeah, then it's not shocking anymore. That's that's one difference between Python and other comedians where they may use shocking language or profanity or violence incessantly and it, it's part of their vernacular. And then you, you do become sort of deadened to it uh, in some instances. Whereas Python, they may just string you along and then hit you. And then that shock is funny as well as shocking. Yeah. Um, Graham Chapman said that Cleese was known to be a perfectionist. I've seen him in many interviews and, and that's been discussed. But Graham Chapman said he would literally analyze one word in a dialogue for a whole day. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cleese was very precise. And the two of them worked as a writing team. They had met at Cambridge, and they performed in uh, student reviews. And then from there, instead of pursuing careers in law or medicine, they became comedy writers for the BBC. And they worked together throughout the 60s on several shows. Um, Cleese was a very precise writer, precise in his language. And uh, Graham Chapman was very anarchic. He'll come up with this weird idea out of left field, and he didn't know where it came from. But he introduced it into their writing, and then Cleese had to deal with it. And that's one thing that helped make Python Python, because it would take a, an ordinary situation into the extraordinary, as, as when um, John Cleese was writing a sketch about a guy bringing a broken toaster back to the shop. And, and Graham Chapman said, this is boring. Why not make it a parrot instead? <laughs> I remember um, that. The dead parrot sketch, which is immortal. Yes, I, I remember that. And I was just a kid when it was around. My, uh, I remember my dad loved it. Um, so anytime you get a group of creative minds together like that, there are always creative differences. And then add strong personalities. Um, and, and that contributes to uh, those creative challenges too. Where did most of those challenges arise? I, I read in your book that sometimes they'd come in and they'd sit around for several hours and no ideas would come and then all of a sudden they'd just burst forth. But where did those creative differences and challenges arise? Well, I'm not sure where the ideas arise from, but I think the tension between them was certainly uh, stirring up uh, almost an incentive to... Uh, top what has been done before. Um, it, it, as I mentioned, it, it, they broke all these standards about what was considered uh, acceptable in TV comedy, and so they would push themselves, whether it was shocking or if it was just some really bizarre concept of an idea. Um, why, for example, would you have Vikings sitting around in a restaurant singing about spam? <laughs> well, that's it doesn't mean anything. It's right. funny. And I'm sure they, they, they argued about whether that was funny or not. But one of the impressive things about the Pythons is that they really respected each other's attitudes and opinions about comedy, you know, much more than anybody else. And they made each other laugh more than anybody else did. So if they were presenting a sketch to the group, you know, to try to put it onto the show or, or work it into a film. If the others laughed at it, they knew that it must really be working. And if the others didn't laugh at it, they knew it wasn't them. It was something wrong with the material. Mm. And most of their fights, most of the uh, infighting in the group was all about the material. It wasn't necessarily personality-driven. Right. Uh, and talking of spam, that's a good segue into my next question, because there's an interesting story behind spam a lot which i could not get tickets for love no money for that uh, musical when it was on in new york 
Um, but Eric Idle wanted to uh, make a musical out of the producers, uh, which of course Mel Brooks uh, did. And Mel Brooks turned him down and yet went ahead and made his own musical about it. So that that's... Uh, that spurred Eric Idle to um, to produce Spam a lot, and he did that pretty much in secret for two years before presenting it to the rest of the group. Well, he was afraid that the other Pythons might veto the idea. You know, why are you mucking around with our film? Um, but he really wanted to do so. He collaborated with his uh, composer John Dupre, and they created the demo CD of songs for the show. And he sent that CD to the other Pythons. They listened to songs, they, they, were, they liked the songs, and they gave him permission to go ahead and work up a show on this. And so um, Spamlot won three Tony Awards. It ran on Broadway for four years. It continues to tour around the world. And now they are in pre-production for a film adaptation of Spamlot. So probably next year we're going to have a film adapted from a Broadway musical that was adapted from a film. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Gilliam, you say, wonders if he should have left the work, uh, let the work speak for itself and stay in the past, um, or if it's okay to to keep, you know, bringing it up like this. Um, and you talk about how they've gone off and done their own individual projects. Eric Idle says that his favorite projects are, the, are his solo projects. What's the general feeling about working together now and, and keeping this going? Obviously, they want to do it. They wouldn't keep doing it. Yeah, I think the um, the London reunion was their big blowout farewell as a performing group, especially um, with the subsequent diagnosis of Terry Jones uh, with frontotemporal dementia. Um, so uh, I don't think they are looking ahead at Python as a performing group per se. Um, but they but they all jealously guard what they have created together. It's, it's something unique and something that they haven't shared with anybody else. And uh, even though they all have pursued their solo careers, Terry Gilling with his movies, John Cleese with his writing and one-man shows, Eric Idle with his musical performances, um, Michael Palin with his travel documentaries, now Sir Michael Palin, thank you. Right. Um, they are still pythons, and they will always be remembered as pythons. Right. And we only have a minute left here, but I do want to ask you, what surprised you the most when you were doing all of this, uh, when you were gathering all of this information to write the book? Um, one thing that surprised me was how... Um, removed they are from the work because it was so long ago. I mean, this is almost like the Jurassic Age of comedy for them, looking back 50 years. And yet it's very vital and timely to all of us today and to all the new generations of people who are discovering the work for the first time. Um, and it's, it is in the past for them, and yet it's, it's contemporary for all of us and we'll continue to be that way because this this comedy is pretty timeless right they didn't deal with a lot of topical humor so it's not dated and it probably never will date right david morgan thank you so much i enjoyed reading the book well thank you very much And that was journalist David Morgan uh, about his new book, Monty Python Speaks, The Complete Oral History, Revised and Updated Edition. Stay with us. We're going to hear a little bit more from Monty Python when we come back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Let's see if I... I guess that... <sighs> this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, 
or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Listeners trust the show and advertisers love the audience. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Wherever you go, Alternative Talk 1150 is here for you. Side to side. <laughs> well, welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And Eric, uh, thank you for pulling out those Monty Python clips and the music there. It's, yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. And, of course, that's the Galaxy song from uh, the Monty Python film, The Meaning of Life. Right, right. So um, I asked David Morgan, who wrote the book, and he spent a great deal of time with these guys one-on-one to put this book together. It's just full of interviews with them. Um, but I asked him what his favorite skit was, and he said the fish slapping dance, which is just Michael Palin and John Cleese doing a silly little dance on the side of a canal, slapping each other with fish. (laughs) It's like, he said it doesn't really mean anything except that it's maybe better to always have a bigger fish. (laughs) They they did uh, so much with uh, absurdist humor. Uh, that a lot of like sketch groups or comedians uh, don't uh, know quite how to get into properly. I think you know, um, and they were real pioneers in that kind of absolutely. just bizarre out there, but still very funny stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't realize how much they changed the face of comedy until I talked with David Morgan and read his book. So, well, we're going to end. Uh, the show today with uh, a little sketch um, from Monty Python. I'll let you set that up. Yes, well, everybody knows about the Spamalot musical, of course, out there, and everybody knows about spam email. Uh, and did you know that both of those things was, were spawned from a sketch on the original Monty Python series called Spam? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so th- this is from a live version of uh, Monty Python uh, on tour uh, doing that same sketch. So I thought. What better way to end the show today? Okay, sounds great. I just want to let listeners know they can find me at conversationslive.net and 800-495-7617 if you want to uh, get hold of me. Can't have egg, bacon, spam and sausage without the spam. Why not? Well, it wouldn't be egg, bacon, spam and sausage, would it? I don't like spam. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.